In the construction business and can't find what you need, Quality Supply and Tool has served Hoosiers for over a quarter of a century. Tom Hawk is the branch manager of the Indy location on South Harding Street. We've always been big on keeping our shelves fully stocked of inventory of industrial-grade tools, concrete, masonry products, as well as the necessary accessories to help get the job done. You don't have it, you can't sell it. Our experience allows us to help with getting the pros as well as the weekend pro taken care of. Quality Supply and Tool also has locations in Bloomington, Lafayette, and Jeffersonville to help you think outside the box. Store. Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson. Brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Another fantastic looking evening in Indianapolis, Indiana in the month of May. Good evening to you. My name is Jay Query and Mike Thompson joins me tonight as well. Eddie Garrison is here running the big board for us, as this is Beyond the Bricks. Our looks, our look, easy for me to say, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the figures, the historic figures, the officials, the drivers, the team owners, the personalities that make it the greatest spectacle in racing. Mike, last night I thought we did one of the best shows that we have done in the short history of this program. By that I mean you sat down recently with a three-time winner, in Johnny Rutherford, and I thought incredibly compelling stuff, extremely vivid detail from Johnny Rutherford, and it was so good and you had so much detail that I think it's only fitting that we perhaps go to the second half of his career and hear more from Lone Star JR this evening. I I agree, and and Johnny was so gracious as always with his time and and so wonderful in his answers and gave great answers. I thought it would be great to to do a two-part, and actually we probably had enough we could do a five- or six-part on this stuff because it's such good stuff, but I'm glad we could give him his due and give him a couple different hours. Was there a particular anecdote from last night? For those that did not hear it last night or have not yet listened to that podcast – And talking to Johnny Rutherford, we kind of went over the early part of his life, really, being born in Kansas and then his father's career taking the family to Texas and how Rutherford got involved in racing and basically just became drawn to seeing cars on dirt and the different opportunities that were there, the different engines that were of appeal to him and trying out each and every opportunity that came his way and then talking about some of the tragic things that he became involved in in racing the triumph of getting his chance at indianapolis and then the tragedy being involved and driving through the terrible accident of dave mcdonald and eddie Sachs. but there was so much detail his personal life his courtship of his future wife was there anything that jumped out at you as the part that you thought was the best audio last night I love the story about how he met Mrs. Rutherford and, and they, they courted so quickly. And, a, you know, a month later they're engaged and then they're married immediately and, and they were together for so long. And I love that story personally. But you think about that, you know, they met in 1963 and then in 1964, it's almost all over because he's involved in that terrible accident with, with Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald. And he was, you know, fortunate to make it out of that accident, you know. So it's just that's the way racing was in those days. I mean, you know, you think about a guy like, you know, Jerry Hoyt, he was only married a couple of weeks 
and then he he was you know fatally injured in an accident in 1955. I mean, those that's the kind of things that happened. So I, I loved though that story about how Johnny Rutherford met Mrs. Rutherford and and uh, you know the whirlwind courtship they had and how she thought he was married and so did his dad. And I just thought that was a lot of fun. You know, whirlwind probably explains also the some of the early races in Johnny Rutherford's career. He got his first championship race win at Atlanta in 1965, and then in 1966. The reality is, Mike, one of the images I think that perhaps Johnny Rutherford from a still photo standpoint is most remembered for outside of things that took place in Indianapolis would have been what happened in Eldora in 1966. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think for people who may not uh, know what we're talking about, you know, look up that photograph of Johnny Rutherford flying out of Eldora. I mean, that was, uh, you know, he was lucky to, to live in that accident. So that was a serious, serious crash that he had in uh, the spring of 1966. And, you know, I mean, he was lucky, lucky to survive. I mean, broken arms, broke both arms, broke his finger, had a head injury, had to sit out the, you know, the 66, 500. And, you know, he's very candid in this, in this soundbite we're about to hear uh, talking about how long it really took him to get back. And I felt a real kinship with him. You talk about what soundbites resonated. I felt a real kinship with him talking about this because I, you know, I think some people know that I had a really serious accident when I lived in Indianapolis on 465 and, you know, basically flipped over my Ford Fusion in an accident where I was T-boned by a semi and, and uh, I broke my neck and broke all my ribs and broke my shoulder blade and, you know, my clavicle, all that stuff. And, you know, I'm still to this day, not right. And, and Johnny was telling me in this, in this interview uh, soundbite talking about how it took him so long to really kind of feel right again and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, my accident was in 2014 and I still don't feel right. And you're trying to get back in a race car, you know? So I felt a real kinship with Johnny talking about this. Here's Johnny Rutherford talking about that injury from Eldora in 1966. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I had some serious problems with my right arm, uh, all year. I they got, staph infection in it and had problems and uh the elbow was uh was injured and the, and the arm and everything and uh I in and out of the hospital uh most of the season the next year and uh uh anyway uh just you know uh struggled and and got the thing back you know working and everything and uh, started uh, the next year with in sprint cars and and uh, had a had a ride at the speedway and then anyway just struggling to recover from that accident. You just don't realize how uh, your physical being uh, deteriorates when you're not doing driving race cars and. Uh, Anyway, I I kept working at it and working at it, and uh, had uh, you know sixty seven I had a ride, sixty eight I had a ride, uh, sixty nine, just you know getting myself back in shape actually during that time, racing sprint cars and and you know uh, the Indy cars and uh, uh, got things going and and. Uh, 60, 73, I finally 
you know, started showing that I, that I was back. As a matter of fact, that 73 return in terms of saying that he was back, Johnny Rutherford, perhaps the doubts had started to set in. We talked about it last night in the fact that there seems to be a window of opportunity for a driver to show their metal behind the wheel of a race car. And in today's day and age, you only get a couple of years perhaps to show results or else you're out the door and somebody else is in. For Johnny Rutherford, he did indeed miss that 66 race, as he had mentioned, came back in 67 and ran all the way through 72. But in his first nine Indianapolis 500s, his average finish was 24.6. But he plugged through. And in 1973, the big opportunity came when he joined McLaren. And that association, of course, changed the trajectory of his racing career. Johnny Rutherford on the McLaren M16 and the opportunity that he had in the early 70s. Eddie Mayer and I had breakfast the next day, and, and, and he uh, hired me to drive the car. And so we, we tested at the Speedway in, I think, probably January, late January or February. And uh, I drove the thing for three days at the Speedway and could not get it to stop understeering or pushing the front end. And Tyler Alexander, my crew chief, and I tried everything that he could think of and I could think of to try to, to get it to, you know, balance. And uh, it didn't. And so I... I drove the uh, second car and they sent the, the one car back to England and I didn't know till several years later when I talked to Gordon Coppick, the designer uh, went over to for the opening of the tech center for McLaren uh, and uh, anyway uh, they brought the car back to the speedway and uh, we uh I, you know, we went out for practice, uh, and I drove the car. We'd always go out and drive, you know, five laps or so and come back in just to check for leaks of any kind and anything. And the car felt pretty good, but I, I had not really hustled it yet, you know, just to, just to shake it down and came back in. And we were ready to go out and make some runs. And uh, I went out, and uh, the car felt so good uh, that I was able to run it hard through the corners. And I ran the first lap and shaking it down, getting the feel of it. And I, I then just stood on it. And it's the first time I'd ever been able to drive around the speedway uh, flat-footed, never lift. And we ran, I think, three or five laps, and they brought me in, and we had gone 200 miles an hour. And, and wow, boy, that got everybody's attention. And uh, the car was, was that good, you know, and it's a, the... It, the uh, M16 was probably the best flat bottom car to ever run at the speedway. It was it was good, and I was the driver, and I you know that boosted my stock a great deal. And uh, anyway, we uh, set on the pole for the 73 race.
And then a year later, and by the way, in that 1973 race where indeed Johnny Rutherford, as we had talked about, got his first big break, the first opportunity. And that's oftentimes all that a driver needs in terms of just waiting to see what can happen for him. He finished in ninth in 1973, but in 1974 for Lone Star JR, it finally all came together. A handsome driver, a winning smile, and Johnny Rutherford. And here to call the winner is the voice of the 500 St. Collins. And here's the checkered flag for Johnny Rutherford, winner of the 1974 Indianapolis 500-mile race. So the 58th annual Indianapolis 500 went to Johnny Rutherford. I guess not annual, but the 58th running, certainly, of the Indianapolis 500 went to Johnny Rutherford in 1974. Led 122 of 200 laps that day, which is particularly impressive, not only because it led to a win, but considering where he started. Johnny Rutherford on that 74 race. We we scuffed a piston during practice on Saturday, on pole day. The guys hustled the car back to the garage, uh, changed the engine, uh, everything involved, all the filters and stuff, came back out and we, we got in line. And the, the official said, no, you're going to have to go to the end of the line. Well, why? Because you weren't here when, when everything started. And so you have to, you have to go back. Well, we had a, had a fast car and Foyt was fast and we were, we knew we could, we thought we could beat him. And, uh, anyway, I had to start in the back and qualified 25th in the field in 74. And, uh, the car was good. Foyt was on the pole, but I, uh, started the 25th, but we had a, uh, nearly exact time as Foyt. Anyway, they dropped the green flag, and I just passed them as I came to them. And in 12 laps, I was running third. Car was that good. And Boyd and I staged the battle uh, that, you know, I'm sure the fans love because I tried to go by him, and I, I he had the, the uh, overhead cam V8 Ford engine in his in his car and it had just enough grunt that if I timed it right I could get beside him but then I wouldn't I wouldn't hold him there and he he edge a little bit and uh, so we raced like that for a number of laps and he uh an oil line came loose on his car and literally covered me up with oil so I had to back off of him and they black flagged him and he came in and I took the lead and uh, went on to win the race. And when we when we pulled the car up on the, the little victory lane they had then, uh, they had the black and white checkered uh, uh, carpet, you know, up in the victory lane. And pulled the car up there and, and stopped and and did all they did do in victory lane. And when they backed the car off of that, the oil that had, been deposited on my car by Foyt, left a perfect outline of the nose of the car and the front wings and everything right there on the carpet. And uh, anyway, uh, that was my first victory at Indy. And it was uh, it was a thrill, obviously. But uh, I, I think 
I was so much faster than Foyt through the corners uh, that I knew that I could just, you know, if he hadn't had the oil leak, I could have passed him. And if I ever got ahead, I'd just, you know, drive away. So anyway, that was my first victory at Indy. You know, what's interesting about that, Mike, is Johnny Rutherford is one of those, and I'm not saying this isn't the case with all drivers, but when you talk to Johnny Rutherford, you truly do get an appreciation for how much he appreciated the opportunity that McLaren gave him, and he is well aware of the equipment suddenly having it and what that enabled him to do as a race car driver. Oh, absolutely. Throughout the whole interview we we did, he kept talking about how, you know, different doors opened up for him and how he, you know, a door opened up for him to win his first race at Atlanta with leader card and things like that. And and he's you're right. He's absolutely very appreciative of all these different things. I mean, we played the sound by last night talking about that door that opened up with Smokey Eunuch. They got him that first that NASCAR win, win he got. So you're right. A hundred percent. He's very, very appreciative of all those opportunities. When we come back, there were other wins for Johnny rutherford that even with the win he wished perhaps he could have flexed a little more muscle we'll explain what i mean by that when we come back to beyond the bricks whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about cascali ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if cascali is right for you This is Beyond the Bricks, brought to you by Quality Supply and Tool. Think outside the box. Store on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Jake Query, Mike Thompson, Eddie Garrison. Beyond the Bricks here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan on a gorgeous, absolutely spectacular Tuesday evening talking about Lone Star JR, Johnny Rutherford. You know, Mike, in talking about Johnny Rutherford and the fact that here he was toiling through those first nine years, one of the things that's interesting is I think a lot of people might have looked at it and said, did he win races before he came to Indy? The reality is, as you talked about yesterday, he did, and he did it in different disciplines, right? Yeah, I mean, he was the sprint car champion of 65. He won a championship race in 65, but then he he really didn't have any more championship racing success until he joined McLaren. So it was a really kind of a long drought until he he got another chance to win some, some championship races. And he actually, you know, he drove some NASCAR as well before he got to Indianapolis. So uh, as we talked about, if there was something that there was an opportunity for him to run, he was going to figure out how to run and try to run it towards the front. No, absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, incredibly, incredibly talented driver. There's no doubt about it. And, and as you said, in many different disciplines. So in 1975, Johnny Rutherford comes back to Indianapolis, of course, as the defending champion. And keep in mind also, Mike, and this is one of the things I think we should touch on. You know, here he comes back and he's the defending winner. He is still running in a McLaren Offy. He's got Gatorade sponsorship this time, so he's going to be hydrated. And this is now getting into, in my opinion. Now, Mike, you may disagree with me. But as you get into the mid-70s, I think the thing that people need to understand is that you're now looking at basically entering like three decades of Tony Holman's ownership. And in the early to mid-70s in this country, and I've talked about this a lot, but the automobile was such an integral part of the American culture, not only from the standpoint that in small-town America, 
Anderson, Indiana, you know, Toledo, Ohio, I would assume, Akron, Ohio, good example. But small towns throughout America, many, many, many people, I would go so far as to say, I don't know if I'd say the majority, statistically speaking, one could probably point out otherwise, but so many people in this country, Mike, either made their living on the automobile by working at General Motors or Ford or Delco or in a stereo factory that was putting them in cars or something that had to do with the transmissions of cars. So many people worked in some way, shape, or form towards the industry of the automobile. And for those that didn't work in the automobile industry, oftentimes their weekends were occupied by being in the, drive- in the driveway with their friends and souping up their Dodge to make sure it was faster than their friend's Ford, who last week was faster than their friend's Camaro, etc. And the ultimate innovation of speed and muscle of the automobile was on display at the highest stage in Indianapolis, Indiana. And it is my opinion, Mike, that around the time that Johnny Rutherford was ascending was at the same time that the Indianapolis 500 was becoming a major staple within the American culture. No, I, I agree with all those things. And, and don't forget Toledo. We're, we're the home of the Jeep, man. We, we built the Jeep. And so anybody who has a Jeep out there, your Jeep came from Toledo, Ohio, home of the, the, the Jeep. So my grandpa was a retiree from Jeep. So we're pretty proud of the Jeep in Toledo, Ohio. Well, and, and like but, I said, I mean, my grandfather worked at Allison, right? I mean, there were so many story like there were so many people that were connected to the automobile and they were captivated by what was taking place in Indianapolis. Like in 1975, when Johnny Rutherford is the defending winner came home and finished in second. And now all of a sudden he's running with Bobby Unser. He's running with AJ Foyt. He's right there in the mix of things. 1976. He comes back again, McLaren underneath him with that offie. He sits on pole. And Johnny Rutherford might have been the class of the field. And then the reins came on lap 102. And if you listen to the broadcast of the actual rain delay, at one point in a broadcast, he said, you know, listen, I, I, I feel like I've got a good car and I'm fine if we go back out racing again because my car is really good. And why wouldn't you think that? You started on pole and you, of course, had led – for 48 laps over the 102 and you're right back up towards the front so he was very confident in his car but the rain was also confident it would not go away and after 102 laps johnny rutherford was declared the winner in 1976 here's lone star jr on win number two i was in the car and they had the cover over it and we were all wrapped in and uh they took the covers off and was getting ready for tony to give the restart engines uh, command and the rain the bottom fell out and it just rained and it, of course it had taken three hours to get the track ready to run on uh when it started raining before and uh that meant another three hours and it would have been too dark to finish it and so betty and i got to i got to be the first driver to walk into victory lane rather than drive in so uh well, that was, you know, the old lady uh, smiled at me on that one. But uh, anyway, that was my my second one. And uh, it was, uh, you know, any way you can win them is okay. But uh, still, uh, it would have, been, would have been good to go on and finish the race and see how it would have turned out. I really do believe, Mike, that, 
you know, like he says there, it would have been good to go and run it, but I think he knew he had the horses underneath him. There are certain cars, you know, Buddy Rice, when Buddy Rice won the Indianapolis 500 in the rain, you felt okay about it because he had the best car all day and he was able to do what he wanted to in that car. Same thing with Rutherford in 76. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, uh, I remember the, the Jim McKay call of, of AJ Floyd pacing up and down in the pit lane, waiting for a chance to get back out there. He's like, Oh, AJ is like a caged animal waiting to get back out there. But I still think that had they gone the full 200 laps that uh, Johnny Rutherford would have still won the race. Interestingly enough, a year later, the fortunes would change and change in a big way because a gearbox issue would knock him from finishing first one year to finishing last the next. He finished 13th in 1978, 18th in 1979. Then Johnny Rutherford gets into what I think personally, Mike, now you feel free to disagree with me here, but it is my opinion that the car that he ran in 1980 may be the one with which he is most synonymously linked. And one of them that is still, I think, for a lot of people, one of the favorite race cars to talk about that he took to victory lane for win number three. Oh, 100%. I think when you think of Johnny Rutherford, you think of the 1980, the Chaparral 2K. Absolutely. I think that's the car that the, you know, and it's interesting because we keep hearing the yellow submarine, you know, mentioned, uh, you know, when, when guys like Scott McLaughlin drive the, the yellow submarine or when Elio drove it a couple of years ago and things like that. But, you know, I think when somebody says to me, yellow submarine, to me, the yellow submarine is the Chaparral 2K. That's that car. So I don't know how other people feel about that, but that to me, when somebody says to me, the yellow submarine, that's the car I think of immediately. He had ended with Budweiser sponsorship and McLaren in 1979. And then in 1980, as Mike had mentioned, joining Jim Hall's Chaparral team. And of course, that yellow submarine, the Pennzoil Chaparral Cosworth. And this is how it sounded in 1980 when he looked back on win number three. Here is Johnny Rutherford. It, it really was. And it's just another situation, an opportunity for me uh, all through my career. I had received opportunities, you know, uh, getting better scars in IMCA, uh, winning a race uh, in a in, in a championship car in Atlanta, and uh, then I had my problems with the broken arms, and then struggling to get back into shape, and finally working my way into uh, the McLaren car and. Uh, uh, it was, you know, it was, it was good. I had good opportunities, and then this one when, uh, when Al uh, and Jim Hall had their problem, uh, and and uh, Al wanted to keep his crew, and and Jim didn't necessarily want that particular crew uh, working on the car, and uh, anyway. Uh, Al quit, and uh, Tyler Alexander had called Jim and told him he ought to hire me, and uh, Jim did. You know, that was it. I uh, got a chance. Uh, Al had won the last race at Phoenix in uh, in 79, and uh, we went back to Phoenix to test, and uh, uh, fortunately... Uh, Jim had hired Steve Roby, uh, Australian mechanic that had been with McLaren, and he knew what I li- what I liked in a car, and they set the car up the way Al had won the race, and I couldn't drive the thing; it was just too wobbly, and 
and didn't take a good set in there or anything. And uh, we tested for half a day, and uh, Jim tried a lot of different things. And and uh, Steve said, uh, let me try some things. I know what Rutherford likes in the car. And he started uh, different springs, lowering it down, uh, getting it ground effects working. And he, he solved some problems with the ground effects. The, the car was getting so much downforce from the bottom it was sucking the bottom down against the track and it was starting to rub it and uh, so anyway he made some uh, made some changes to things and we went out and and before the day was over uh, we were nearly two seconds a lap under the track record it was an incredible the only time I with with the car the way Roby had it set up uh, the only time I had to lift was just to transfer weight to the right front end of the first turn, which was tighter than the others, and then I could run it flat-footed all the way around the track uh, back to turn one to do that again. And uh, it got so much downforce and side bite uh, in the corners in turn three and four running flat-footed, it made me grunt, you know, uh, 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 just holding it, and uh, that was it. You know, boy, we we came back and and uh, had a lot of success and uh, won the title in the in the chaparral and, and Jim Hall. Jim Hall was easy to drive for because he was a driver of note himself, and he you could talk to him and ask him things and tell him stuff and. Uh, he would make changes and do little things, and uh, we were we were there. You know, it was just really good. Won several races that year, and and uh, uh, won the title. I got the uh, national driver's title, and and uh, won the uh, uh, car title for Jim. And it was, you know, it was just a, a great run. Mike, I think one of the things that I talked about that is so impressive about Johnny Rutherford's three wins there in 74, 76, and 80 is, you know, not just the variety of ways in which he had to do it, I guess. I mean, obviously starting towards the back and then working his way up towards the front and then holding on and dealing with weather conditions. And I mean, obviously, as he talked about there, you know, some of the issues in 1980, but in addition to that, and not just the microscope of how big the race was, and it still is, obviously, but when you look at the competition that he was running against, and there are great drivers, arguably you could say that the, the race is now more competitive on the racetrack in terms of the balance of cars than maybe it was at one time. You can see that by the number of cars in the lead lap. But Mike, when you talk about the fact that he's racing against A.J. Foyt, and Bobby Unser, and Al Unser, and Gordon Johncock, and Tom Sneva. I mean, you're talking about really, in terms of the depth of talent of drivers from diverse backgrounds in this country racing, it is something to be able to say that you won three races in that decade of the 70s, and well, two in the 70s, and then into the 80s. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and Rick, Rick Mears, you know, was in the 80 race against him and things like that. And yeah, I, I agree. 
totally agree. I mean, incredible fields he was he was going up against, and uh, just you know, and, and just to get to drive some of these cars that he drove, I and mean, the Chaparral two K. I mean, you know, Donald and I talk about it sometimes that going into race day nineteen eighty, I don't think there was a bigger prohibitive favorite than there was uh, than Johnny Rutherford was uh, ever in the history of the race. That that he was going to win the race if. If the car held together, Johnny Rutherford was going to win the 1980 race. It, it was just a given that that car was so good and that driver was so good and that combination was just going to be the – they were the car to beat as long as the car held together. And, you know, they, they went out and they proved that. But, you know, a great a great run for Johnny Rutherford, especially from that 1974 to, to 80 period. And then after that in 1980, he was still competitive, but – you started to wonder how long Johnny Rutherford would do it. He transitioned into different areas of his career, still staying in contact with motorsports. We'll let you know about some of that. And what is the origin of Lone Star JR? Mike had to find out, and he'll share on that as well. All when we continue talking about Johnny Rutherford on this, a Tuesday edition of Beyond the Bricks. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Query, Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks. Eddie Garrison running the big board for us here tonight on a Tuesday night. Talking about Johnny Rutherford and his partnership. You know, it's interesting. Mike, we talked about the fact, you know, Budweiser, Gatorade. He had big-time corporate sponsors, but I do think that the next advertisement we're going to hear is probably the corporation and the sponsor with which he is most linked. Absolutely. Um, You know, great partnership, and he was a great spokesman for this company. We're talking about none other than, roll it, Eddie. From Riverside to Elkhart Lake, from Atlanta to Indy, all around the championship car circuit, the Pennzoil Chaparral has been a standout. Here's driver Johnny Rutherford. Driving the Chaparral for the past two years has made a Pennzoil believer out of me. A win at Indy, a national championship, and thousands of race miles without an oil-related problem. Protection in Pennzoil. Get them together in your car. Pennzoil Motor Oil. Ask for it. So that was Lone Star JR in 1982. Mike, by then, there might have been people that just assumed that Lone Star JR was his nickname because he, of course, was most known, even though he was born in Kansas, as being a native of Texas. You, of course, are one of the inquiring minds that had to know, correct? I had to know. Uh, I had heard three or four different versions of the story over the years. And I thought, you know what? I I need to know where this actually came from. And one of the versions of the story I heard was that when he was driving for uh, McLaren in 1976, he had sponsorship from High Gain. And High Gain produced CB equipment. Remember during the big CB phase, you know, C.W. McCall, Convoy and all that, uh, Rubber Duck. Uh, pig pens, the rubber duck. So I asked him, I said, I have heard that you got Lone Star JR is actually a CB handle and that's where it came from. Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, rainy day, we were sitting around and, and uh, those people were there and they said, uh, you know, you don't have a CB handle. And 
you know, I, we, CBs were very popular then. I had one in our motor coach. And uh, anyway, uh, I don't know who came up with Lone Star JR, but it certainly caught on. And the people call me that. I could be on the road in the motor coach with the CB on, and somebody would be talking, and I'd, and I'd, I'd make contact with them. And they'd say, yeah, who is it? Yes, what's your handle? And I'd say, Lone Star JR. They'd say, Rutherford, is that you? <laughs> so it, it did stick. And I've been been called Lone Star JR and other things in my life, but that one has uh, uh, stuck. Got to wonder if there was ever a time on the CB while trailing a car to a racetrack where Lone Star JR was on there to find out about a traffic jam and Super Tex 14 was on the other end, right, Mike? That's right. I'm telling you, the CB thing was big in the 70s. Oh, so, I mean, Convoy is one of the great songs of all time, right? Absolutely. I, mean, I was I was lucky to get an autograph back in the mail from C.W. McCall about a month before he passed away. Really? And he signed this really, yeah, really nice picture to me and everything, and I'm thinking, man, this is a guy who literally – the music video is him just standing there with a CB, just talking into it. Did he sign it and say, Pigpen, this year's a rubber duck and we're about to put the hammer down? He wrote rubber duck on it. <laughs> that is beautiful. Hey, um, Johnny Rutherford might have had more time to drive around in that RV as he was talking about by the time that retirement started to come into play. And for Lone Star JR, 1984, he enters the race, he starts 30th and finishes 22nd. Then a pretty decent run there in 85, 86, and 87. A sixth-place finish, an eighth-place finish, and an 11th. Then in 1988, a 30th-place start, a 22nd-place finish. And you could start to kind of feel that perhaps the rumblings were there because, unfortunately, it kind of became one of those games, Mike, where Johnny Rutherford was later in his career. And I don't know so much in the beginning of the rumblings of retirement that it was as much perhaps about, and although I'm sure – that all of the other issues come into play when you're talking about retirement, but there was also almost as if seats were just kind of drying up and the musical chairs of racing came into play as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit different time too and and just trying to find that right ride, that right combination. And unfortunately, it, you know, we know it happened with Big Al, you know, getting kind of pushed out at the end, even though, you know, he was competitive and he could still win races. And, you know, Johnny Rutherford won the 86 Michigan 500. He's the, the oldest driver to win a 500-mile race. So, I mean, he was still competitive, but just harder to get those rides. Here is Johnny Rutherford on his decision to officially retire. It... Uh... It was a it was a situation where all of the guys in my group, uh, Bobby, Al, uh, AJ, uh, Mario had announced uh, his intentions to retire, and uh, we were all had all raced together for several years, and it was it was just you know that particular time, uh, and I. I was talking with Betty, and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to hang it up. And she didn't mind that at all. You know, she thought that would, you know, she said, well, that's your decision. And so uh, uh, I decided I would I would do it. Al had made his announcement, and uh, I just went over, and I, I went into A.J.'s garage. And I said, A.J., if you got a car, I can take a ride in around here. I'm going to retire. And he never hesitated, spun around and asked his chief mechanic, is there a car ready to run right now that Rutherford can take and run around? 
And uh, he said, yes, that car. And it was the car that A.J. had retired in a year or two before, year before. And uh, anyway, they got it ready, and I went out and made a couple of laps around the speedway and came in, and uh, that was it. You know, uh, Tom Carnegie interviewed me, and and uh, it was, you know, that was the, the end of my uh, racing career virtually. And a brilliant career at that. That was May, of course, of 1994 he was talking about. He had mentioned he couldn't secure a ride in 91 or 93. Failed attempts there in the late 80s and into the early 90s. And then Johnny Rutherford got out of the cockpit in 1994, but he stayed active within racing. Uh, Mike, the reality is, especially once the Indy Racing League got underway in 1996, Rutherford was loyal to the Holman George family and working for them as an official and a driving coach as well. In numerous capacities, he was always seen around the racetrack. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was a great official, great with uh, as a mentor for younger drivers and things like that, and, and as the pace car driver. And so he, he was very active and very visible still in the sport for many, many years after retiring. One of the other skills that Johnny Rutherford had that perhaps some don't know about, I was fortunate enough to kind of serendipitously find out about it, Back as they were getting set to start the Centennial Era, you may recall that there were different race cars that you would see around the city of Indianapolis, model race cars. When I say model, I mean larger scale plaster race cars, one of them being the Marmon Wasp that I believe was displayed somewhere along Main Street and Speedway. And it was Johnny Rutherford that painted that Marmon Wasp, did so down in the basement of the museum. And I was working in local television, was able to go do a story on that and interview him for it. And one of the things, and perhaps the only thing that he put on that paint that he did for the Marmon Wasp was his signature good luck ladybug, because he always talked about the fact that uh, there was a race where he got a ladybug on him and ended up winning and always thought that ladybugs were his good luck charm. The other thing that was a good luck charm for Johnny Rutherford for the entirety of his career, and Mike, we have just about a minute left, but I think it's fitting to end with this. In his time working for the Indy Racing League and his time then working for IndyCar or the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in many different positions, it wasn't a ladybug that was always his good luck charm also, as well as Betty, who was always by his side. And those two, if you saw one, you saw the other at the racetrack, and that is the true definition of a lifelong love story. Oh, absolutely. She was an incredible lady and a great partnership, an absolutely fabulous partnership. And they did so much to help so many people, you know, with her work with Kara, you know, the Kara charities and things like that. um, Just she didn't get enough credit, I don't think, for all the work she did. And uh, just they were a tremendous partnership. And she passed away on January 20th of 2019, by the way, but not without uh, Johnny Rutherford always being by her side in a true love story and i know a lot of people uh continued to mourn with johnny rutherford in that tremendous loss for him as he continued to be around the racetrack and occasionally showing up with mclaren arrow as a matter of fact in the pits thanks for listening tonight this has been beyond the bricks